we haven't met, I'm Eugene Cash. It's a Sunday night meeting of, of SF Insight. We'll sit, there'll be a talk, discussion. Please uh, put your, allow your body to go in the seated posture, sitting upright. Having a lot of sound here, I, I'm assuming you can hear. <laughs> Just quiet all day. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, please put, let your posture be balanced. So as uh, best as possible, you're sitting on your sits bones, whether you're in a chair or on a cushion or on a bench and that the spine is relatively straight and that the uprightness comes from the base of the spine and goes all the way through the back of the neck. making whatever adjustments are needed to be in balance. And then using the skillful means of mindfulness of breathing to begin to center yourself in the present moment, in the liveness that's sitting here breathing. And the breath can be long or short, rough or smooth. It can be deep or shallow, it doesn't matter. What matters is your present-centered awareness, the presence of mindfulness. Letting your attention become very 
intimate with the body breathing. Being aware of the sensations that are created by the movement of your life's breath. And for now, it's very skillful to let everything else relax or be in the background of the body and the breathing. Any thoughts, feelings, emotions, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, except for the body sitting here breathing, to start to bring a sense of collectedness to the consciousness so that we're just here. We're not trying to figure out what we're going to do tomorrow or what happened today. Letting life be very simple for this moment of being alive. It doesn't mean you have to stop any feelings or emotions or mood or thought, but put the breath in the foreground, breathe with it rather than be enchanted by it. There are sounds happening in your house. Just breathe with them. Please utilize whatever skillful means allows you to be here now.
what supports you being present and aware of this moment of your life? And then this moment. And then this moment. Please feel free at this point to either uh, stay with the skillfulness of being with the body and the breathing, or it may be skillful, there may be enough presence, enough presence centeredness to open the space of awareness, to be aware of whatever is predominant in consciousness. And so you could be mindful of thoughts happening or feelings occurring or sounds happening or smells or whatever is in the foreground of awareness without being mesmerized by it, but being aware of it, being aware of the various processes of being alive, of being a human being that includes sensations and thoughts and emotions and moods and sounds and smells and tastes and touch. Even inner sights that may occur. Using whatever skillful means supports you in this meditation this evening. Staying very present, very aware, very awake now. Either with the body and the breathing or whatever's in the foreground of awareness. 
Meru, do you want to speak? Yes, thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Meru. I'm one of the board members. Um, can you hear me okay? Great. I'm one of the board members of San Francisco Inside uh, community, and I'd like to share a few words of Donna. So Donna, as some of you already are familiar with, is the uh, Sanskrit and Pali word that means the virtue of generosity. And it's the Buddhist, um, it's been the tradition that has supported the teachings of Buddha and the Dharma for, for over almost 2,600 years now. And it can be given in both material or in immaterial ways. Um, one example is what I think uh, our teachers have been doing for our community, spiritual giving, um, like Eugene and Pandas. Um, and this type of generosity could also include those who share the Buddha's teaching, um, such as monks, like teachers of meditation, and the lay persons who encourage other people to keep precepts and practicing and support teachers of meditation as well. Um, so our community, San Francisco Insights programs and activities have been sustained by the support of our community members since the 1992 when it was established. And your generosity helps us uh, with expenses such as um, insurance and then website maintenance and provides offering to the teachers as well, which is really important. Um, so if you are interested in, um, I'd like to invite you all of you, all of, I'd like to invite all of you us to think about what kind of dana you could give um, to SFI. And if you're interested in sharing your dana via donation, and please visit the link that I'm going to share in the chat after the talk tonight. Um, and if you have any questions, please also share in the chat as well, and I'll I'll try do my best to respond. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Miru. So, um, yeah, I get realize I can just start the talk from what you said because dana is one of the skillful means in Buddhism, and it's a way that the uh, Buddha and the monks and nuns learn to uh, uh, weave themselves into the life of the world around them, which is they gave what they had to offer and they were taken care of by the people who uh, they were giving to. And so there's a mutuality of dana that is uh, inherent in Buddhist practice. And it's, it's beautiful, it's very skillful. It's not the usual um, commercial exchange that we have here in, you know, current times in the West. But uh, um, yeah, but it's really, it's one of the beautiful teachings that the Buddha had. He always used to, if people didn't know anything about his teaching, the first thing he would start with would be generosity. And of course, generosity means to be generous to yourself also, and that's part of practice. So um, the name of the talk that we sent out this week was called Skillful Means. It was, uh, I apologize for not being skillful enough to title it uh, more accurately, but you'll hear what it's about. It's, it's about skillful means. And I'll say a little bit about it, but I'll go further into a whole nother level of what could be, uh, what we've learned and what we can understand uh, about our life, which is really the skillful means I wanna speak about. 
So the word um, upaya is Sanskrit and Pali for um, for skillful means or method. And it's really about any activity or skill or experience or practice that helps one uh, move towards realization and the embodiment of that realization at whatever level. At whatever level we could say, it, uh, you know, it's a skillful means that supports our own freedom and the embodiment of that freedom and the goodness of that freedom. And so the Buddha, this is a quote, I, one of my favorite quotes in all of Buddhism, it's from the uh, Ittavuttaka Sutta, from the Buddha who said this, committed life is lived for the sake of seeing into things and understanding them. This committed life is lived for the sake of seeing into things and understanding them. And it's a beautiful, in my experience, understanding of what we're doing here. We're trying to wake up and understand reality in all its forms, including the form that's sitting in your seat right in the the life that's sitting in your seat that we're already investigating and trying to understand not conceptually but experientially by just sitting here and breathing and being aware of it being aware of how life does itself in that way and then of course there's the level of skillful means of our engagement or what we how we act or how we speak and things like that. And so, you know, the questions that are important are always, what are we doing now that's skill? What are we doing now? Is it skillful or unskillful? That's, is it helpful or unhelpful? Is it clear why we're doing it or not? Do we understand the causes and conditions that bring this moment into being and our participation uh, in it? And so in, in the meditation, it's skillful just to get here. And just to come is skillful. You've already been skillful. You already get, you know, a, a plus, right? That's not a plus, it's a check mark, a plus. For, uh, you know, just coming to meditation, you know, whether you're at home by yourself or with a group like this, is really skillful. It really supports something that sometimes we don't even know what it supports, but we understand that it's supportive of our being on a certain level, and I'm using that as a capital B, being, right, of the, the heart and soul of who and what we are. And so, in, and in mindfulness, it's skillful to know how to be with the breath and stay close to the breath and get closer to the breath and, and start to separate, start to unseparate the breath from consciousness. So it becomes it becomes one thing. The knowing and the breathing become one thing. We get closer. And of course, that's not easy particularly. It's a skill that we learn over and over and over again and is different every day and calls for a different kind of support every day. You know, I'm, I do my early morning sit very early, 5 a.m. I'd like to sit when it's really quiet and there's nothing, nobody's texting me and I'm not phone calling anybody and there's nothing too interesting on mine at 5 a.m. So I'm not doing that. So I'll go and sit and it's, uh, and I, um, I don't think I was here last week. Was Pam here last week? Is that right? Yeah. 
yeah, I thought so. Yeah, because I've been teaching retreats this month, so I've been doing a lot of sitting, which is just great, and a lot of uh, a lot of simply getting here in a very full way. And so I've been very diligent in my uh, sittings about being with the breath, because a lot of samadhi comes for me with the breath, and I like samadhi, uh, and it's it's good good for my heart and mind. And you know, and and then as the samadhi deepens with the breath, it just opens to awareness of whatever's here, and it's but it's still with the samadhi of not being cathected to what's happening, not being identified with what's happening, being aware of the process of life that is doing itself, and that and that's always doing itself, even when we think we're doing it. Right? It's just life doing itself. And it's be beautiful and it's difficult both, right? And of course, skillfulness in practice is also skillfulness, as I was saying, in life, in speech, in action, in relationship. Um, yeah, in, in whatever form, right? <clears throat> and so practice, the silent practice, gives us the foundation to be aware in each moment, like right now, being aware of your body, being aware of your breath even right now, being aware of the sound of my voice, being aware of your thoughts, being aware of your feelings. It's all right here and it's the same awareness that we want to start to rest in or abide in. The knowing is that we want to abide in. And so, as I was thinking about this week and the talk, I read an article. Here's the article. It's from uh, the newspaper, from the Chronicle last week. Um, and um, it's by, from Mick LaSalle. How many people here know who Mick LaSalle is? Okay, a few. Oh, people who don't even live here know who Mick LaSalle is. I'm impressed. Anyhow, he's the he's movie guy. So I like to read about the movies and see what's good. Yeah, I don't think you want to try to read this, Josh. It's a little okay. You could if you want. <laughs> you get to see the pictures. Okay. Um, um, and he's the movie guy in the Chronicle. And I'm always interested in what he says, good, bad, you know, what he likes, doesn't like. And But his, his um, article this week was called Living a Year in the Pandemic Teaches You Things. Right, and so I think we've all lived for a year in the pandemic. Has anybody not been living here in the year of the pandemic? Like all of us have, right? So, and he's saying it teaches you things. So what I wanted to talk about a little bit, I'm gonna quote him and then I'm gonna expand on what he says about what it taught him, right? And what did, what did we learn? What did we, what, what did we come to understand by living a year in the pandemic? Which is, of course, he's saying it as if it's over, which it isn't. And, uh, and it can feel like it's over, I have the privilege of having had both my, I got vaccine. I'm happy with getting vaccine. I'm not saying everybody should because that's not PC to say everybody should get a vaccine. But for me, it's the right thing and you should all do what's right for you. But, but especially after I got the second shot, and it's been two weeks now, it's like, oh, I'm good. 
I'm just good. I'm, I'm hugging people out on the street. I don't care if they have COVID or not is how I'm feeling. And I'm like ready to travel. I'd like to go somewhere. I've got plans. You know, it's like, oh, you know, and so it's, 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 it is like it's over. But also, I know it's not over. COVID-19, and who knows what's going to happen. I am, I'm assuming the vaccines work, right? <laughs> Which I hope that's true. And, and I'm assuming I'll be safe, but actually I don't know. Because remember, do you, anybody here remember before COVID-19, right? Do anybody remember, right? Right? It was like, we weren't thinking about what's out there that's going to get us. Or, you know, who can we talk to or touch or get near or anything like that? Or, or, and we weren't thinking about, oh, what are the variants of whatever is dangerous out there that could get us later, right? Because, of course, they keep telling us that the vaccine has variants. So, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit what he wrote on, the, on this. Meaning, I'm not going to read from this because it's too small a print anyways for me. I mean, I can read it, but not for giving a talk. So I've got some of it here on my paper. And, um, and to see, um, you know, he said, uh, yeah, we all want to reflect a little bit about what we've learned from living with the pandemic, Right whether we wanted to or not. He said he ended up learning whether he, he wanted to or not uh, while shelter in place during the pandemic. The first thing he learned was it pays to have 40 rolls of toilet paper, right? That was the first thing he got from the pandemic. And he said, but, but really what I heard and what I hear from him it's about he learns something about people being afraid. Because he says when people get scared, they start buying up toilet paper. And then in quotations, he says, who knew, right? Because who knew? Why did people start buying toilet paper? Like that was, that was a real thing. You remember that? Now they have plenty of toilet paper, at least at Safeway, if you need some. And I'm happy. And of course, we've got 40 or 50 rolls here too, so we could give you some. No, I don't have that. That's not true. I shouldn't say that. But, but you know, it's like, who, who could have imagined we're going to have a, a, a pandemic and people are going to run around buying toilet paper as like the most important thing? You know, a lot of parts of the world, you don't even use toilet paper. You use water. You clean your rear end. And it's not even a big deal. If, you know, if you're there and you're doing it. When I've been in those countries and cultures, and, and yeah, it's, it's just not even a big deal. It's just important which hand you use. You don't want to use the hand you're eating with. You use the other hand, right? If you're eating with your right hand, you... You wipe yourself with the left hand just in case you end up somewhere soon or you run out of your 40 rolls of toilet paper soon. Um, and so, yeah, he says, right, he says, always being with 40 rolls ahead, always being 40 rolls ahead is the way to go. What's the worst thing that could happen? Eventually you die with three dozen unused rolls and seven of your heirs split it up and have a party, right? 
And so he's being very funny about it, which is I also thought was really good in what he was talking about because he had a sense of humor. Now, clearly he didn't get COVID-19. He might have less sense of humor if he did. And of course, for those of us who have had COVID-19, and even for those of us who haven't, it's not funny, but it's still important to have some humor even when things are not good. It's, it's great to have one sense of humor, even on a very subtle way, wherever we are, because we're not in control of reality. So then he goes on, and he's humorous for some of this. He says, I don't really need to go grocery shopping again, right? And so he says, grocery delivery services like Instacart, that's what he's doing, right? And he and a lot of people I know that don't go, they haven't gone shopping. So in my house, just to be honest, we do both. My wife has been very careful because of her um, vulnerability about that kind of illness. So she never, she hasn't gone out anywhere to a store. And me, I'm a little more cavalier because I, I have good health, especially around viruses and infections, which is, to be honest, mostly I don't, I don't ever get them. So I go to the store. It's not a big, I go to Safeway or Whole Foods to buy food. And, you know, I've worn my mask the whole year and everything, but I'm not so worried about it. And uh, so that's a certain kind of privilege of health that I have, that my body has uh, uh, around those, about around certain illnesses. Like I never get the flu. They always want me to take a, what is it, flu shot now? I never take a flu shot. I don't, it's like, I don't get the flu. Why would I take a flu shot? Is, you know, of course, tomorrow I'm sure I'll come down with the flu or that's my fear, right? Or concern that I, but it's a kind of privilege that I have of being very healthy in that way. And then he said something that I, I really liked. He said, uh, he said, he will never read history again in the same way. And because he likes history, and he said he's read about Shakespeare, Samuel Peps, and Bucaccio, Bucaccio, and he said others who spent a year and a half indoors because of the plague or other illnesses, right? And that supposedly they did. They spent you know eighteen months in, during a plague. And right, and, and so he'd read about that, and you know, like in Shakespeare, and then he'd turn the page, not realizing what it actually meant to read about somebody spending a year and a half, you know, indoors because of the living with the plague or being indoors, and you know, and of course, none of us, I didn't know what it meant, you know, if there's a plague. Or if there's like a hundred years ago, there was the virus in the United States of America, I think around the world, right? That was so dangerous. I had no idea about it. And he said, he says, a year and a half may be a paragraph in a biography, but endless event, but eventless year and a half to people experiencing it might be the longest 18 months of their life. Right, and it is. It's been a long time. We've all had to learn how to adjust to reality 
as it changed and to be skillful as possible to our, for ourselves and for people around us and with whatever interaction we have with the world. And then, of course, he goes on with his sense of humor. He says, uh, and these people didn't even have Netflix, right? Back in Shakespeare's age, right? They were like, they were in the room and they didn't even have iPhones, anything. I mean, you know, it's a different world. And it may have been even a better world in some way because we're not so drawn out, we're actually learn how to stay right here where we are and wake up here. And so the what he's talking about is the understanding that may have come for all of us, many of us, can bring a lot of compassion and kindness and empathy and, um, and, and patience right, which is one of the paramis, one of the perfections of the Buddha. And I know it's brought a lot more patience for me because it's, it's just suffering to think I can do much for the last 18 months. It's not 18 months, it's a year here. But, um, but you know, really there just hasn't been that much to do. Right? And the wisdom of seeing the big picture is what he's pointing at, which is, of course, the foundation for real equanimity. Right? Upeksha is overlooking, to overlook, to see the big picture. Not just see the specifics, but see the whole show. And we can begin to relax with that. And then he goes on, he says, you don't get through a long running crisis by deciding how you're gonna feel about it. Everybody got that? You're not gonna get through a long running crisis by deciding how to, you're gonna feel about it. He reads a lot about, he's read a lot about history and he read about the bombing of London and he'd been imagining uh, it wrong. He'd been, he says, I've been imagining Winston Churchill making a speech and everybody feeling better permanently. Didn't realize that a long siege has its ups and downs. Good days followed by bad days, mood swings, even from hour to hour. We don't get to decide how we're going to feel about anything. You're going to feel what you're going to feel. And that's a really important part of all meditation practice. We're not in control of our feelings. Can we be aware of them as feelings? Can we be aware of them as a emotional component of what human beings experience and not just believe them all the time. Sometimes they're accurate, but I mean, so a lot of times when I have fear, it's not even true what I'm afraid of, but I'm having fear and it's a real emotion and it's a real experience and it's totally uncomfortable, but it's just fear. It's not me. We're not the emotions we have. We have emotions but they're not who and what we are. And so, of course, he's talking about what it means to be mindful of emotions and the impermanence of emotions. They're changing nature, right? 
And then he said a very interesting thing, which I appreciated because it's very honest. And I think it's true for many of us. He said about two months ago, I went through a phase where I woke up every morning exhausted. This was alarming to me because I normally wake, I, I normally wide awake in the morning, but here I was dragging one foot in front of the other, just able to work, but barely. So I went to the doctor and got checked out and found out that I'm fine, but apparently it was a low level depression. And that I thought, oh, so good that he said that for people, because I don't think he's the only one of us. And some of us may have experienced some kind of low level depression at some point during the pandemic. It's like, oh, shit, you know, when is this going to be done? I don't want to even do anything anymore. There's a kind of hopelessness or not caring or and, you know, you're OK in the, you know, at some level. But at another level, you're not okay, right? And he says, apparently it was low level depression. I didn't feel sad, just tired. And apparently that's how depression can work. Since then, I've talked to other people who report the same sorts of things, periods in which they can't get out of bed and other periods in which they can't sleep. I have more that can't sleep experience myself. like. And also when I teach retreats, I get a lot of energy from that. And so like I'm, I sleep, I'm so happy when I sleep six hours now, but you know, five hours is often very, that's what I'm sleeping these days. And I wish I could sleep more. I am good at napping. So you don't have to worry about me. I take a really good nap every day. It's like, and, and if I don't, I'm in trouble, but Anyhow, he says, he says periods when they can't get out of bed, da, 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 and they can't sleep. He said, I'd prefer to steamroll over inconvenient feelings, but sometimes they steamroll over me, right? And it's and and that's also part of the wisdom of of community, is that if we if we hear from others, oh, it's not just me who's having this. This is part of the human experience now during COVID-19. It's not your fault. You haven't done anything wrong. It's, this is difficult and it's been difficult, even though it's definitely brightening for many of us. And, and definitely the, the media's brightening about, about COVID-19 in terms of, you know, uh, Biden, you know, getting like, I don't know what he said last, like May 1st or something, we're all going to be, you know, uh, if we choose to, we're all going to be vaccinated. It's funny, I, I did get a note from Spirit Rock asking me what I, am I comfortable with doing an uh, on the land retreat for New Year's this year, which I'm teaching the New Year's retreat. And I'm like, absolutely, I would love to do on the land. And, um, and then I said to them, I said, I assume Spirit Rock's going to figure out how to do that. Because how are you going to, what are you going to do if some people are vaccinated and some people aren't? And is that a problem or not? And I'm not even adding my opinion into that. I'm just saying, as an institution, as an organization, Spirit Rock has to deal with that, right? For, this, for the greater Sangha. 
So Miklosal, he says, video conferencing is helping to define social priorities. So even this, right? We never did this before COVID-19, right? I mean, you know, I'm sitting at home, you're all sitting at home and we're together in one room, right? Although it's a, it's a virtual room, room. And it's wild to teach the retreats, right? I just taught the 12 day retreat and the five day retreat. Even this was Marana Sati, the last one about mindfulness of death. And I was, I'm constantly amazed at how good these retreats are for people and how, how powerful it is to get here and even to teach about death uh, in this way. And he goes, he talks about it in terms of his work. Before the pandemic, we saw our coworkers a lot more than our friends, but pandemic has taught us we can get a lot done while working at home with Zoom. Uh, we, it helps foster a requisite level of warmth and conviviality in work relationships. Conversely, Zoom has not been able to replicate the pleasure of actually being in the company of friends. It's good, but it's not the same thing. I mean, we, my Pam and I have one couple that we're in a bubble with, and we see them, we have dinner with them a couple times a month, and also their children who are our godchildren. And it's just, it's so wild to go be with somebody, at least for me. I don't know about for any of you, but for me, I mean, we, we go be with them. I can barely go to sleep afterwards. There's so much energy just from having hung around and had some food and talked with people like who are live and they're real people and all that stuff. It's just, you know, it's great. And it's, it's just, you know, it's a different world than the last year, right? He says, um, he says, Zoom has not been able to replicate the pleasure of actually being in the company of friends. It's made the absences a little bit easier, but it hasn't been a substitute for the real thing. This post-pandemic, I expect to see a, a lot more business Zooming and a lot more nourishing of personal relationships, meaning in person. And what he's describing here in terms of skillful means is how understanding can change our actions and what how we're going to relate how we're going to relate to ourselves and to our partners or our friends or our colleagues or the world because we see everything can go like that right COVID 19 boom and everything changed and you all know it and and we who knows what's going to happen again he said he he goes on he says i took the world for granted anybody here not take our world for granted in that way before covid 19 anybody here think oh yeah we could have a uh you know a pandemic and everything would get shut down i mean at least i took our my world you know uh, uh for granted and he says, I won't, I won't anymore. Human contact, hugs, dinner with friends. I can't imagine ever saying, oh no, are we going there again? No, I wanna go there. I don't even know where it is, but I'm practically there already. You know, he's, he's got a nice sense of humor about his excitement about 
post-pandemic and what's possible. Mm. Mm. And he says, this is your life. You're allowed to do what you want with it. And that's, he, now, the one thing about the article, I thought, oh yeah, he has a certain perspective from a certain privileged, white male privileged perspective. And he's, you know, he's middle class, at least, you know, and he, you know, he's doing okay. And so uh, he says, millions of people around the world died of an illness they hadn't heard of New Year's Eve. They may have worried, but they sure weren't worried about COVID-19, right, before this. And he goes on, he says, what, what can, uh, what, what we can get about, uh, what is anything we can get out of this experience? The courage to do what we dreamed about before lockdown. The courage to do what we dreamed about, oh, except I said it wrong. The courage to do what we dreamed about during lockdown, right? Um, I keep saying it wrong, sorry. Courage to do what we dreamed about doing in lockdown, but we couldn't because of lockdown. That's better. Should I say it again after I mutilated it a few times? Right, the courage to do what we dreamed about doing in lockdown, but we couldn't because of lockdown. And I've, I thought about this, you know, and I'm, you also can reflect on it. I, I asked somebody, asked a friend of mine, and he said something interesting. He's, a, he's an artist. He said, he said, it was something like living into a new childhood, but with more life wisdom. He's older, older, meaning older than me, almost 10 years older than me. And he said something like living into a new childhood, but with more life wisdom. He said the, the COVID year offered the opportunity to create a more mature self, a new self, a self more real and accurately responsive to the current life parameters. And I thought, oh, that's a really good, and that's the, that's the potential we've all been working with, right? And it doesn't mean we've all gone and we're totally enlightened now and we're happy about everything. But what it means is we're more mature. We learn something about it. There's more of who and what we are because we've had to be with ourselves much more or with ourselves and a partner generally. And even that we had to learn a lot about. And so, I mean, when I think about myself again, more and more 24 seven, it's all practice. And I already knew that, but it reinforced my understanding of that so much. It's all practice. This moment is practice. Every moment is practice. And the need, how important, just the basics are all we need. If we have shelter, if we have food, if we have clothes, if we have healthcare, that's what we need. And we can actually live with that little. And everybody here, I believe, has learned to live with less over the last 12 months, right? And uh, I'm also, things that I knew, but more as I learned how important it is to relax, even for a moment. Like just right now, we're, we're all fine. 
right? Just in this moment. Even, and of course, I always like to say this, even we learn how to relax with not being relaxed. We, we learn to relax with being tense or uptight or angry. I mean, I get, I get not happy at the kids yelling outside my window when I'm teaching because I've told them before and they know it and, and they're kids. And so I understand that. I don't, I, don't really, um, I don't really blame them, but I totally get irritated. It's like, would you shut the fuck up? Come on, I told you. And, you know, and, and I don't say that to them, though, just to be clear. I assume you're not all kids. But, um, but, I, um, but I feel very relaxed with that reaction that I have. I don't feel identified. I don't feel like it's real. It's real on the most surface level of Eugene. But actually, on any deeper level, the kids are great, and I love the kids, and it's fun to have kids. And they're in my building, and so I know them. I'm watching them grow up. They're just wild. The 12-year-old's getting taller than me already. He's like, he's got a really tall dad, a good guy. And we, you know, and so I spend time with them. And I was thinking a little about what supported my freedom now. What, what, and part of it is my own privilege of having enough food and a place to live, and also the privilege of practice, that I've been given a practice, and it's been a gift. It's, it's the dana of the Buddha, actually. It's the generosity of, of the Dharma itself. And so I've, so this whole year has just uploaded my, uh, upscaled my, my practice, my 24-7 practice. And also I have the real privilege of living next to Golden Gate Park. So I'm in the park all the time and it's really kind, the park. And the park is beautiful. And it really, just let me say it. If, you have, if you're in San Francisco and you haven't been in the park lately, go to the park. You know, it's the 150th anniversary of the park and they just have done it up. It's like it's been to the beauty parlor or something. I don't know the right metaphor, but it's really, it's like it's, it's just got, it's got all its duds on and it just is gorgeous, you know, and, I, and I'm talking about any time because I go in there in the fog and the rain at night and day, sunny, and it's just wild and alive and the, 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 the beauty of nature, with, which is so free to be itself. Um, and then he's got a whole thing about what he wants to do, uh, you know, and he's been thinking about during the pandemic, he wants to buy a house in France, right? This is his total privilege. And yeah, good, good, go ahead, in, 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 not in Paris, in rural France, right? Before the pandemic, I was thinking, yeah, maybe now he says, I want to do it. It'll take some focused effort, but actually learning and, and actually learning the language for real this time. But I've talked about it, talked about it, talked about it, and talked about it, at least as much as the people in the song talked about going to something. And now I feel like it has to happen. And he's He's describing his privilege, but he's also describing his heart. Like that's something he cares about. That's important to him. 
and what what is available to each of us at whatever level that we would can do that we would like to do that that we would like to do and is possible to do and we haven't done right and i thought for myself you know mine is travel i really would like to travel i'm really and i have the means to do a little traveling the other thing is i want to teach more retreats in person cuz I'm good at it, and I and it's so beneficial for for myself and for the people who come and do retreats at Spirit Rock. And uh, and uh, the last thing he said, I think, is this: He said, "When we're free of this pandemic, we'll be freer than we ever were. When we're free of this pandemic." will be freer than we ever were because this time we won't just be free, we'll know it. We'll know something we didn't know before that, oh, we could be confined for a year, right? And you never know what's going to happen. And who knows? Where I don't know what the medical people say. I don't know how bad it could be. The next, you know, the next pandemic could be, the next virus could be. I also don't know about climate and climate change and how serious that's going to get. I mean, I keep hearing not good things and somebody's going to connect me with someone. I'm trying to learn even more about what's going to happen in the next 10 years, right? Which is not my orientation, but I just want to see what's reality going to be and how can we work skillfully with whatever's true even if it's things we don't like or don't want. And so the, I believe that for all of us, we've all learned some patience and some kindness and some wonder during this pandemic, right? And the skillful means part, right? The Buddha said, what, you know, develop what is skillful because it's conducive to benefit and pleasure. Right. And it's the same skillful means that uh, in, I believe they use in 12-step groups. They say, God grant me the security to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, right? To really see clearly, you know, what's possible. Give me enough presence serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to discern the difference between the two. And then I believe for all of us, the, the movement or one of the movements that's come out of this that's still here for me, in addition to teaching traveling is more freedom, more freedom for everybody. And I, you know, the part of that is again arisen because of the prejudice, bias, hatred uh, towards Asian American people that's happening in this country, and that is the same insanity that has been directed against black people and other peoples of color at different times. It's like there's a different target at different times, and it's all dukkha. You know, it's all ignorance that's being manifested. And and how to work with it skillfully, I'll just say a couple things from Eddie Hillison, 
who was a woman who died in the Holocaust in World War II. And she said, if I have only one duty in these times, it is to bear witness. I think I have learned to take it all in, to read life in one long stretch. She said, God grant me the, the great mighty calm that pervades all nature. When I hear the, her say that, the calm is really the presence of heart and mind to be there. And she said, and she goes on to say, I want to be there right in the thick of what people call horror and still be able to say life is beautiful. The misery here, she's in the camp when she's writing this, in the concentration camp. The misery here is quite horrible, and yet late at night, when the day has slunk along the uh, into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire, and then time and again, it soars straight from my heart. I can't help it. That's just the way it is, like some elementary force, the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. It's just amazing she could have that kind of presence and openness of heart and mind in the middle of the concentration camp, right? And to see the feeling, have the actual emotion, the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent, right? Against every new outrage and every fresh horror, we shall put up one more piece of love and goodness, drawing strength from within ourselves. And that's what happens with practice, sometimes quickly, sometimes over time. He, she said, we may suffer, but not succumb. And then the last piece that she left on her, um, as she was leaving, somewhere and it's that she threw a card out of the out of the train that was found by farmers that said we have left the camp singing we have left the camp singing so totally you know totally beyond my imagination for me but but she makes it believable because it was true so I'm stopping there. We have a few minutes for questions and comments. You know, I love to hear from you and and let the Dharma live in the whole room. So please raise your hand. I'm not sure where you're, you either has a, have a hand raising button at uh, under participants or uh, somewhere else. I don't know, or, or reactions, reactions. Let me see them. Yeah, on mine it's under reactions. So please raise your hand and don't wait too long because I talked longer than I planned, but reactions or under participants. Yeah, there we go, Miru. Hi, Eugene, um, thanks for the talk. I'm gonna switch to speaker view. Great. Hi. Hi. Thank you for sharing the. Um, I mean, thank you for the talk. And um, I have uh, I had the privilege of visiting my parents back in Korea recently, um, and got back. Um, and I resonated a lot with the 
the writing, um, the article that you shared tonight. Um, one thing that really most resonated with me is that poignancy of life that we all felt. And when I was there, my parents, especially they treated my trip so preciously as if it's my last trip. Mm-hmm. And the same was with my brother and then my friends as well, because they know how hard it is these days to travel internationally. And it is actually cumbersome with um, quarantine, uh, required quarantine, and then some un- un- um, unexpected risk too, right? So mm-hmm. um, so I, <clears throat> my parents are never really emotional whenever I leave because they know that I'll be coming back. Um, so never really cried, but this time they were all in tears and mm. it was the same for my friends. Mm. Um, so I was thinking on the way back on the plane, I was thinking, you know, what if I treated every like encounter with my friends as the last one? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not necessarily, it's not in a morbid way, but mm-hmm. that just makes every encounter so alive mm-hmm. uh, and so present. So that was such a big moment um i mean throughout the whole trip the learn through the poignancy of life um you know what how can you make it even more alive so that was i wanted to just share that yeah great thank you no beautiful and beautiful to hear about your parents and their of course the tears are tears of love and uh and i'm sure they were both ways right because you know because really, we never know when we're going to see anybody again. It's not even that we're making it up. Mm-hmm. We don't know. And that's why the Marana Sati retreat is always so powerful, because nobody knows when we're going to live or die. And it's just part of the deal. Yes. So, okay. Thank you. Happy. Hi, Eugene. Hi, happy. Um, yeah, good to see you. Good to be back. Um, my question is that, um, I mean, I also really resonate with what you share in the talk, especially in terms of the impact of the pandemic on our lives and what we look forward to after the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my question is around um, finding a sense of home. Um, I feel... I mean, I think maybe especially during the pandemic, I feel like, oh, so many of my friends have left Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely feel the sense of like, the reason I felt San Francisco has been my home is because all my friends are here and I've already have this strong community. Mm-hmm. But now that a lot of them are gone, mm-hmm. I sort of be like, oh, where do I call home? And I know also like, there's this like internal sense of like feeling home within our body. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, That's one level of home. Yeah. So right. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on like well, just getting support on like finding home. Sure. No, it's, it's an important question because yeah, home is here, but home is also here and here, right? It's not mm-hmm. one place. And, and so, so some, some people can live, there's a very famous poem from Dogen, you may have heard me talk about it, where the, the punchline of the poem is, um, you know, some, the bird is calling him back home, wait, happy, where'd you go? Stay here, you, yeah, um, is, uh, the, there's a bird calling him back home and he turns his head to see 
who's calling him home and then why would he even turn his head because every step I take is my home is what he says every step I take and that's a deep level of understanding but then there's also other levels which is like oh yeah I'm in my home right I don't think you're in your home right now but some for some people a car is home right right and so it it's um, different for each of us and then there's also the place itself I heard there's an interesting movie called Nomadland um, which is about people who just constantly travel right around the country and don't have one place that's their home every place is their home but I've been in San Francisco you know 45 years or something like that for quite a while and I consider it home and and it, it is my home but I have other homes but they're not quite really home like I think of Detroit as one of my homes where I grew up but I'm, you know I just visit Detroit every 10 years or so and and so it's you know it's a big question and then community because I've had a lot of people leave San Francisco also both before the pandemic, as it got so expensive. So many of my friends left because it's so expensive. And then during the pandemic, people went different places where they would be safe and, and come as comfortable as possible. And so you'll have to see who comes back or doesn't, and also who's here now that you can become community with. Because it does everybody on one level we're all sangha on another level to really have family a family-like community takes time and that's part of you know what happens when things change because nothing is permanent including home right and that's why this home and I'm pointing at you and me this mm -hmm. home is really emphasized in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Right? Got it. Okay. I guess like in terms of this home of like ourselves, uh -huh. I think sometimes I also have a hard time feeling home within my body. Sure. <laughs> no, of course. And that's an important part of practice because all the... I'm trying to think here, I'll say what I was going to say. I don't mean this personally, but when we really get here, all the refuge, ref, refuse, no, all the crap comes up. And so we're uncomfortable being home in our own body at times. And mm -hmm. depending on uh, the difficulties your body has had, the traumas your body may have had, then it's hard to be home in our body. And so that's part of what practice asks us to be skillful with, but also to start to get a little more relaxed in our body, even if it's in one part of our body, like the feet or the elbows or something that's very neutral, arms and legs. I do a whole practice every day sensing my arms and legs mm. right? because they're, very, they're much more neutral than the torso, right? And so mm. that's, and so it's just a, and it's very supportive of, of upeka, of equanimity. And so to play with it is an important part and it's something that develops over time. 
with practice. Got it. Cool. Thank you. Okay. Good to see you. Thank you. Okay. Who else is going to put their hand up? Oh, there we go. Isla. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Upeka in the talk. That's the... Is wait, that... wait, wait, wait. Did I get your name right this time? Yes, yes. Yeah, nice job. Yeah, Upeka, that's the word for equanimity, right? Overlooking. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to look over. Yeah, yeah. overlooking, yeah. Yeah, I've been um, seeking to cultivate more equanimity. Mm. And I like the, the um, practice that you just mentioned, focusing on arms and legs and that sort of thing. Are there other practices that you can recommend for cultivating more equanimity? Um, one is notice when you feel equanimous. Because I'm sure you're equanimous at times where you don't even notice it. Right. And that's And so just pay attention, even if it's, um, even if it's like you're on your Peloton, is that what that is? <laughs> yeah. It's when furniture, it's fine. <laughs> I know, I know. But, but while you're on it and you're doing your exercise, but you're not trying to be great and you're not, not doing it, but you're equanimous about doing it, pay attention to that state of heart and mind because mm. that's here. And then you'll, you start to recognize the state of consciousness that's called equanimity. And this is my understanding. When we're aware of dukkha, it starts to, to let go. When we're aware of sukha, it starts to flower. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with different states of consciousness. When we're aware of difficult states of consciousness, they, they start to release or we're not, we're not so identified with them. When we're aware of some more sublime state, and I'm calling Upeka a sublime state, it's, it just starts to flower, but it doesn't, Upeka doesn't flower like a Disneyland fireworks. It flowers like, and you're just there, and you start to appreciate the just thereness, which is not a highly valued state of consciousness in our culture in our bigger culture, right? And also just, I know you, I think you've heard this, but I often talk about Upeka uh, as one of the heart qualities, right? It's one of the four Brahma Viharas. It's really grandmotherly heart, grandmotherly mind. It's the mind that's seen the whole show and it's all okay on a certain level even though they, they love their kids and their grandkids and they want everybody to be fine, they can see the ups and downs and they're okay because they know it's all part of life. Is it related then to like contentedness or something? Or That's an interesting question. That's a nice question. I always imagine, when I think of my grandmother, I think like she's just content. Uh -huh. and no, that's like, good. Yeah. Let's think of it that way, and let me let me look around and see what I see about contentedness, because it's a beautiful state of being to be content, and it's really part of what happens as one goes deeper into the stages of awakening, right? There's a deep, deep contentment that's actually sometimes confused as awakening. 
but it's it's not the end of the story but it's a good part of the story no doubt about it i mean you get to contentment enjoy <laughs> okay yeah good to see you okay now i think we're done yeah we're done so i'm going back to gallery view we'll just do a little sharing of merit um, wait, I'm going to try to do something a little different. I'm going to look at the chat to see if there's anything I'm supposed to respond to. Things are opening up again really beautifully here. Blah, blah. Donna, uh, whatever you can do, dream to do. Yeah, that's a good quote from Goethe. I like that, Mark. Thank you. Uh, I read about, oh, Lily Pike. I'd be happy to talk to you. Send me an email, Lily Pike, okay, if you're still here. I don't know if you're still here. I can't see you on my screen. Um, but, yeah. And uh, this interesting article. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, uh, yeah, the woman's name that's been posted. Okay. Oh, Lily had to sign off. Oh, she sent me the email. Great. So I'm going to take her email before I I go to sleep tonight. Um, okay. And then uh, a sharing of merit, and then we'll we'll all go to sleep. Um, appreciating our good fortune that we could be here together, that we had the time, the place, the teachings, uh, and the Sangha, so we could practice together. May it be for our benefit, and may this good fortune go out in every direction, in every realm, in every world. May it touch all beings in all worlds. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from dukkha, free from COVID-19 and the impact of COVID-19, the difficult impact of COVID-19. May all beings awaken by having lived during this period of time we call the COVID pandemic. And may all beings everywhere be free. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.